we live simultaneously in physical, emotional, intellectual, and spiritual dimensions. And the work that we're talking about exists simultaneously in all of those dimensions believes that spiritual information and emotional information and physical information are just as important as intellectual information and tries to imbue the work that people are doing with all of those dimensions so that it really resonates fully with what it means to be a human subject. That was Arlene Goldbard. Arlene is a self-described autodidact. She's also respected widely as an author, speaker, activist, organizer, influencer, disruptor, public intellectual, and as a chief policy wonk, all in service to work that advances the idea that art and community comprise the essential tissue culture for the human story. Actually, I think she puts it better. She says... Our lives, with all their miracles and wonders, are merely a discontinuous string of incidents until we create the narrative that gives them meaning. In this episode, we talk to Arlene about her new book, In the Camp of Angels of Freedom, What Does It Mean to Be Educated? In it, she explores the question implied in the title through the story of her life in the company of 11 extraordinary, creative, intellectual, spiritual pathfinders who she calls her angels. Our conversation meanders the tracks and trails of her journey under the influence of the likes of James Baldwin, Nina Simone, Paolo Freire, Doris Lessing, and Jane Jacobs. Along the way, we encounter the tyrannies of credentialism and false dichotomies, the evil of indifference, and the power of an art-fueled vision of possibility. It's a great trek, so onward. This is Change the Story, Change the World. My name is Bill Cleveland. Part one, love and listening. Arlene Goldbard, welcome to Change the Story, Change the World. I'll just begin by saying I feel like your new book truly walks its talk, and I want to thank you for the opportunity to join you on that walk on your odyssey of learning alongside your 11 angels. And if you don't mind, I'd like to jump right into some of those angel stories. The first being Mr. James Baldwin, who I think we both agree had very big wings. And the thing that felt particularly relevant for the time that we're in is this idea of seeing into the heart of the matter. We're having a hard time finding the heart, let alone seeing into it at this moment. And if we could begin by just having you Quote just one paragraph from this, and it's the final paragraph on page 17. And then maybe you could talk a little bit about Mr. Baldwin and his relationship to your journey. Okay. From James Baldwin, writing about worlds so different from my own, I understood that art can be a bridge to empathy and understanding, spanning even the coldest waters. In his work, the distance between personal and political disappears. He taught me that the little stories of our own lives always open into the big story, crying to be told. No one is really fearless, but Baldwin seems so, making plain the fierce love and desire that can overcome, that are all that can overcome, the wounds that goad us to retreat from vulnerability, from truth, from life. So I just have to say, all of your angels have significant histories, 
as you mentioned later, outsider histories. And certainly, James Baldwin had every reason to be a bitter and unloving person in the world. And it seems his soul basically said, I'm not going to live in a world without love. I'm going to double down on this. Could you talk about what you learned from him? Well, love is definitely the key word there, Bill. And as I write in that chapter, it's something that I aspire to, and that confounds me sometimes because it seemed like no matter what happened to him, that love burned like an eternal flame and it always guided him. And goodness knows, he took a lot of shit in his life, a lot of wounding, a lot of obstacles, and he kept talking about love. He, he got to the point where he couldn't stand to live in the United States with what was happening with white supremacy and the communities that he grew up in and was familiar with. But he kept having to come back and be part of the freedom struggle because after he restored himself a little by his time in Europe or the different places that he lived, he filled up his tank and then it was full of love again. In the book, I write about some of the ways it confuses me because people make very general statements about love nowadays, like, Facebook is five minutes a day social media for me. But I see a lot of statements where people say, I love black people, or I love my fellow Jews, or I love women. And I always get hung up and stuck on those statements because I love some people who fit every category. And then there's some people I really have a hard time loving. I just can't quite stretch to the point where my heart will encompass them. And the thing he inspired me the most in is to continue that struggle for my whole life, to try to love more, to try to love better, to try to love fully. Still, I have a lot of questions about essentialism and categorical statements. I think the other thing as a writer that touches me so much about his work is that there's no boundary between the personal and political. The story he tells of what he's experienced and the unique way that he, he perceives things just slides seamlessly into the big story of the society and its discontents and its possibilities. And I love that. It's so beautiful. So I'm going to switch channels to... Nina Simone, and one of the things you said was that you learned to listen with more than your ears. Could you say more about that? Yeah. And these, the chapters in my book, they're chronological. I jump back and forth a little bit, but the Nina Simone one, I start when I'm in high school, because that's when I became aware of her through somebody who was another outsider, but from a very different place, my best friend at that time. And it so happened that her parents listened to the jazz station and went to concerts. And I got to hear some music that I would never have heard otherwise. And Nina Simone was right up there on, on top for me. Did you ever see that essay that was written by Oliver Sacks called The President's Speech? In the New York Review a zillion years ago, he's sitting with these groups of people who are aphasics from strokes and things like that, watching Reagan give a speech. And the people who could process the words but couldn't process body language, emotional coloration, just thought he was ridiculous and were laughing at the speech. And the people who could process gesture and, and scene and so forth, but not so much the linear language of the words, um, thought, what a powerful presentation. <laughs> and I think there's a powerful lesson in, 
in that for all of us because you have to pay attention to what people do as well as what they say and whether it's music, stories, accounts of other aspects of life. There's very often, especially these days in the time of liars, a big contradiction between what is said and what is actually true, what is said and what is actually done. So how do you perceive those things? You have to learn to listen to the language of your body. You and I, we both do a lot of facilitating. And so we've both been in situations where you're getting this like nagging feeling in your tummy. Something isn't sitting quite right here and I don't know what it is. There's nothing linear and logical that you can point to, but you need to listen to the feeling to check out. Am I having indigestion or do these two people in the back of the room hate each other and this is just about to blast off into a giant brouhaha for the group? The thing about Nina Simone if you see any of her concert films, and there's just a ton of them on YouTube and some really good documentaries about her too, is that every system, every neurological, every emotional, every spiritual, and every cognitive system that makes you a person, the volume was turned all the way up and she was completely alive in all those dimensions at any moment. And so you would you see these scenes in these concerts where she's making beautiful music and she stops in the middle because something is going on in the audience that's making her feel like she's not being received in the way that I think is Nina Simone's meta message as an artist is everyone deserves to be fully received and to have that opportunity to show up in full presence. And you see these moments in her concert films where that's not happening and she stops and she talks to folks and she tells them how she wants them to be listening Here's a bit of Nina in Montreux in 1976 doing just that. Okay, we leave you with this. And um, it's sad, but that's what you expected anyway. Stars, they come and go. They come fast, they come slow. They go like the last light of the sun, all in a blaze. Hey, girl, sit down. Sit down. Sit down. <laughs> Stars, they come and go. They come fast, they come slow. They go like the last light of the sun, all in a blaze. All you see is glory, but it gets lonely there. And then she carries on, and you can see something very different is happening at that point. Mm -hmm. So I think from her example is where I would say I really learned that. I'm going to put a sidebar in here because it reminded me of something. Walking into a room and knowing that there's something not right, that was a gift from my parents because often I would walk into the room where they were and I knew something wasn't right. And, you know, my radar told me that something really bad could happen and, and that I needed to make things cool. That came in handy in my work. So I really identify with what you just described. There's a part later in the book, in part two, 
not the angel essays, where I talk about the idea of having a knack for something. And what is the society that would allow you to develop a knack and recognize your skill in exercising that knack and bypass all the formulaic stuff? And facilitation is the example I gave. So I know exactly what you're talking about. Part two, citizens who don't look away. So your chapter about Paul Goodman identifies him as the angel of the uncolonized mind holding the quality of self-authorization. In it, you describe Goodman as, quote, the embodiment of the uncolonized mind, one truly free of Kant and ideology, always questioning, imagining, and discovering without barriers. And then you go on to say that Goodman epitomized the right to be self-authorizing as a citizen of a society or of the world. From my reading, these ideas of decolonizing and self-authorizing are core principles resonating throughout the book, but more as lifelong practice or struggle than an absolute destination. This, I think, ties in with your description of cultural citizenship as essential to the struggle for freedom everywhere. You say in the Goodman chapter that cultural citizenship requires no passport. So my question is, what does cultural citizenship require? What will it take for a nation, a society, a community to embrace and celebrate this notion of each human having an inviolate cultural presence that establishes their right to self-authorize as a global citizen? Yeah. Yeah. When I used to be chief policy wonk of the U.S. Department of Arts and Culture, not a government agency, but an artist and, and others project. And many times I was writing about the policies that we were putting forward. And this sentence is always in my mind that our chief cultural deficit is belonging in this country. And you and I have seen this up countless times that even in a room full of people where you may have an assumption of some sort of entitlement that many of them feel based on outward cultural characteristics or whatever, you're going to get half, two thirds, maybe three quarters, depending on who's in the room, everyone who's feel like I'm not a real American or I don't really belong here or I never really felt at home in the place I came up. Now, other people are rooted and more powered to them. I'm not saying that's a totalizing statement, but say for somebody like me, whose family was only in a country for one generation or two generations before they were forced to move on to another place. I'm not connected to any sense of land. I love my land that I live on, but I can't say, I mean, look at the rise of anti-Semitism in America right now, that there's not going to be a reason five years down the road where I'm going to pick up and move to, you know, a, a faraway land. So it's not about that kind of geography, but the inner geography of belonging. So, you know, in the condition of cultural citizenship, I mean, true cultural citizenship, which needs no papers, we all feel at home in the place where we live. All of our contributions to having created that place are recognized as essential and equally important as everyone else's contributions. There's not a hierarchy of the rich white founding fathers who are really responsible for this place and then everyone else came along and worked for them and they don't really have much to say about who we are. So it's that feeling of deep equity and equality, that deep participation, and I think something very important that often gets left out, which is an equally deep curiosity 
and friendliness with which we greet each other. I want to know who you are. I want to know more about you. I don't want Bill Cleveland as a middle-aged white man to, I don't want to pretend that tells me something about who you really are, what your story is, and what you might have to offer. So I would say whether it's on the level of an individual, a family, or a community, those fundamental values and principles, we're all welcome, we're all curious, we're all friendly, or at least aspiring to be these things. And all of our contributions are recognized. That has to be foundational. When I was doing the USDAC thing, I created a policy that could be adopted by an organization or a government agency that could assess the level of belonging that's reflected in the policies and laws, regulations, programs that they promulgate. I'd love to see, I think every, every institution in every community could adopt a policy like that, where in addition to looking at, say, economic impact or environmental impact, they look at cultural impact and that it's called the cultural impact study or cultural impact policy. Haven't got anybody to pick up on it yet though, Bill. No, you're just ahead of your time. Uh, and this also uh, brings to mind Imbram X. Kindy's call for clarity and specificity about the causes and effects of racist policies in action. He's really just making the point that the vagueness with which our political and social institutions regard potential harm-producing policies and structures like these allow that potential to be ignored completely. I think doing a cultural impact analysis could mitigate this and actually reveal the overlapping interdependent nature of our social, cultural, and economic ecosystems. You know, hidden in plain sight. Which brings me to Doris Lessing. Um, One of the things you identified as important in your relationship with her was not looking away, seeing and feeling and embracing the good and the bad. Here's a quote from you. I learned how easily people live inside a political culture that commands them to look away. So, my question to you, is there something about art making or cultural practice that can mitigate the looking away that makes the hard learning story more enticing and the denial story less avoidable? That's a good question. I think openness comes immediately to my mind. There's a couple places in the book, in, in that chapter and in the one about Isaiah Berlin, where I talk about being freed from ideology, and by which I mean some kind of a pre-made scrim of who's the angel and who's the devil and who's right and who's wrong and what I should really be paying attention to and what's just collateral damage or inconsequential side information. I talk about how I succumbed to some of that as a person of the left in in my earlier life of just knee-jerk. These are my friends. These are my enemies. These people can't have anything to say that would possibly be useful or relevant to me. And I have to agree with everything that these other people say because they're on my side. And when I was freed from that, it was such a relief. It was like the top of my head opened up and air could come into the places that were clouded. So there's a story in The Golden Notebook, which is the first book of Doris Lessing's that I read back in the 60s, um, in which... The main character is a member of the Communist Party in England, in London. And this is right before the 20th Party Congress that revealed 
the gulags and, and all of that. And so there were many more people on the left apologizing for things that were hinted about that the Soviet Union was doing, but hadn't actually become fully known outside yet and hadn't yet triggered a big exodus from the Communist Party, which is what happened when they did become known. And she's at this meeting of an editorial board of a little journal and somebody submits an article and all the people around the table are considering it. And it tells a fantasy. And the fantasy is that this guy is a worker and he goes to Moscow for a party congress and he's wandering around and he just walks through a door and there's Stalin sitting at his desk smoking a pipe late at night. And Stalin welcomes him and he sits down and they have a long conversation about the problems of workers in Britain and he goes home and feels wonderful. And the people on the editorial board are embarrassed to say what they really feel about the article, which is that it's just like one they got last week where Stalin fixed this tractor for these two guys. And it's just, it's just like another one where he put a Band-Aid on a cut. You know, Father, Father Joseph basically took care of everyone. And in the way that Lessing depicts it in the book, you see the, all the truths of it you know, why they're holding to the lie. And I write much later about Václav Havel writing about living within the lie or living within the truth. And that, that comes out in another dimension. And I think we've all done it. I definitely Absolutely. think the right is doing it now. And I think virtually all of we progressives have done it too. You know, oh, been in yeah. that situation where we looked away because someone told us that was the right thing to do and we decided we had to conform. And we wanted to be a part of the tribe and to be cared about and included. These are pretty primal things that we're experiencing. And you're right, we're experiencing it big time right now on a massive scale. Part three, higher ground. So I want to go forward to Paolo Ferrari. Your title of this, Critical Consciousness, Holding the Quality of Self-Determination. And there's actually something here I'd like you to read. It's on page 50, and it's it starts with, there has barely been a day in the intervening decades. Yeah, I start the chapter in the 70s reading Pedagogy of the Oppressed for the first time, and this is mm -hmm. near the end. There's barely been a day in the intervening decades that Frary's wisdom hasn't offered me a key to understanding power dynamics in organizations, but equally in family patterns, in national and international politics, in the relations of race and gender and sexuality, of social exclusion and inclusion reflected in every cultural manifestation. The context may be an actual family in which grown children endow their father with power such that they constantly seek approval at the cost of suppressing their own gifts and desires. Or it may be vast, the epidemic of magical thinking that persuaded millions of voters to believe that a mendacious millionaire reality show host could ordain white supremacy forever. Yeah. And back to that same theme, which is there's an opposite of looking away, which is jumping in with your eyes closed. And there's another point in the next section from Isaiah Berlin. And I'm going to quote you here. And then I would ask a question, which is very similar. In this section, you point to the importance of embracing pluralism, which is, you know, multivalent view of the world and how hard it is not to fall prey to the easy answers offered up by the dichotomous versions of the world that were fed pretty much every day. And the quote that I liked, which is, no doubt politics are easier if you know who the great Satan is 
but sacrificing the ability to see the world in all its contradictions and complexities seems a high price to pay for ease. And my question to you once again is, do you see a role for the art makers of the world for helping dispel the illusion of the black and white, easy answer view of the world? Yes. And in a way, it's the role, because if we're talking about having your eyes open, your ears open, your heart open, your mind open wide so that you don't look away, so that you see everything that's there. And of course, the way our minds work, we need to craft a narrative or a conclusion out of this vast amount of data that's coming into our senses and our intellect at all times. So we're going to make a story out of it. And maybe that story will be a song or a play or a painting, a mural or a photography project or all the things that, that you and I help people work on all the time. But the fact is, the more truth that's in it, the more people will recognize or awaken to the reality that they've been experiencing, but maybe somehow truncating or including or just resisting out of force of habit of having adopted a certain ideological position or whatever to see everything that's really there. You know, it's a tough thing, Bill, because look at politics in this country right now. I mean, electoral politics, so polarized beyond polarization. And some of the things that people on the right believe and declaim all the time are so patently ridiculous and untrue that it's hard to have respect for the speakers or even to care enough to want to figure out why they might be feeling that way. Marjorie Taylor Greene, Jewish space lasers, really, some of these people are fucking nuts. But the fact is, if we don't interrogate what's happening by letting all the information be before us and looking for a way to understand it without erasing half of it. I don't think there's any way forward out of that. I don't think it's a kumbaya moment where we all sit down and chat and agree on something. You know, I don't do as much consulting as I used to do, but back when I did it, I used to always start with an organization by talking to folks there individually, confidentially to find out the landscape. And very often you'd be in a situation where two people would be in conflict with each other and that would be affecting the organization as a whole. And I would say, why do you think he said that to you? Or why do you think he did that? And the person I was talking to would say, I don't know. And I would probe and reprobe and re-reprobe to try to get them to just imagine any reason at all why the other person was behaving as they did. And the resistance to imagining that was often pretty profound because once you let in the idea that everybody has their reasons, then you have to see that other person is human. They can't just be your enemy. You have something to work out. That's not so easy, but a door is open. So isn't this what art does? You know, isn't this what the best art does? Isn't this what the art that really reflects the true complexity of people's lives does. And that's one of the reasons why I've always been so attracted to community-based art and community-based artists, because whatever depiction in whatever form, whatever creation is the result of their work, the process of getting there is allowing many voices to be heard and contend mm -hmm. simultaneously 
simultaneously without disrespecting any of those voices. And that's what produces that vision of possibility. And that's what produces the chance that you or I might care about why somebody did something else. And that caring might be a path to understanding. And that understanding, God willing, could be a path to change. One of the starkest versions of that story was a correctional officer coming to me and saying, I can't supervise that acting class anymore. I said, why? He was very clear. I survive here by imagining these people as not people. And every moment of what they're doing in that classroom gives lie to that, you know, my worldview is shattered by being involved in this. And I'm going home weeping. My wife thinks I'm crazy. I could lose my job if I don't behave in a particular way. Tomorrow, when I wake, or think I do, what shall I say of today? That would ask to God, my friend, at this place, until the fall of night, I waited for Godot, a stride of a grave, and a difficult birth. Down in the hole, lingeringly, the grave digger puts on the forceps. We have time to grow old. The air is full of our cries. But habit is a great deadener. Now, that was imprisoned actor Twin James from the final scene of our 1988 San Quentin production of Waiting for Godot. Now, the good news about that struggling correctional officer is that he did come back and he did reconcile. But there were many who basically said, I can't handle this. I'm a cattle herder here. I can't handle hurting people. So it's a powerful thing. Something else about Berlin that you talked about is the concepts of clear and dark layers and what we see and what we don't see in intimacy. Could you talk about how that relates to cultural community work? Well, one of the things that is the most grotesque, to use Berlin's word, about the society that we're living in right now, I wrote about it in my book, The Culture of Possibility. I called it data stand, a society in which only what can be weighed, measured, or counted counts, and everything else is just we push it off to the side, has gotten us into many of the predicaments that we're living through right now. Because the human subject can't be portrayed by data. It's impossible to reduce you or me or anybody else to a set of like tests and numbers and columns and graphs. And Berlin asked this question, who do you think would be more likely to predict accurately an individual's response to something? A data scientist who just knew everything that could be quantified about that individual or a friend, someone close who knew that person very well. And of course, we all know the answer. There's no way that a machine essentially can understand us better than our own hearts and minds and spirits can understand each other. And that, again, is the essence of art making, that 
there there are some people who make art that could be made by a machine. <laughs> We're seeing quite a bit of That's it now. Sure. Yes. <laughs> but in this collaborative community-based practice that we're talking about, of course, that's not the intention and that's not the execution. You know, I, I often use as a shorthand these four words that sum up a, an, a core idea of Jewish spirituality, which is that we live simultaneously in physical, emotional, intellectual, and spiritual dimensions. And the work that we're talking about exists simultaneously in all of those dimensions believes that spiritual information and emotional information and physical information are just as important as intellectual information and tries to imbue the work that people are doing with all of those dimensions so that it really resonates fully with what it means to be a human subject. When people experience that together, when members of the community, some of whom might be even strangers, find each other through the medium of being taken that seriously and having all those parts, their head, heart, hand, soul, acknowledged. As you well know, the hardest part about it is telling somebody who wasn't there what it was like because it's so powerful. And it isn't measured on the Richter scale of the 50th play that the critic has seen in the last two months. It's a very different dynamic. Yeah. Um, really important. With Abraham Joshua Heschel, you talk about radical amazement. And in it, you talk about the convergence of your political, cultural, and spiritual selves as finding each other. And uh, I, it felt like that was a liberatory story for you. Could you describe that? I can't now remember what year this must have been, but it must have been the late 90s. I definitely had a spiritual experience. I was very demoralized in my life, and I read a book about Jewish spirituality that suggested that the things that we're experiencing as obstacles and punishments may just be preparation for the specific role that is ours to play in our lives. And what Heschel says is some, something is asked of you, but we don't know when it's going to be asked or what is going to be asked. And so we need as much as possible to maintain ourselves in a state of readiness. I'm not religious in a conventional sense, but I'm very involved in spiritual study and practice. And on this particular occasion, I was invited to give a keynote address. It's Now it's called, I think, the National Alliance for Community Arts Education. I forget, but it was community music ed education back in those days. And the guy who started it, actually, in the first place, his backstory is that he started a clandestine orchestra in the Dachau concentration camp. So I already knew when they invited me to do this keynote for their conference that there were, there were some interesting convergences. And I knew I wanted to talk about the kind of work that you and I have been describing as we've had this conversation so far as a form of spiritual practice, in addition to whatever else it is. It's making, it's doing, it's this and that. But it's also a form of spiritual practice in the sense that we who make the work together are sort of the most godlike when we're doing it. We're letting in all of those dimensions. We're creating the world that we would like to see exist. We're entering into a kind of communion with each other. So I decided I would write a talk. It's on my website, It's uh, which is arlingoldbard.com. It's called The Higher Ground, Community Arts as Spiritual Practice. And Heschel's concept of radical amazement was a really formative one for me there. I love the way he expresses it. 
He says that no matter how much science can tell us about how the world works, it will never tell us about why it exists. And that our true condition as human beings is in a state of perpetual wonder. That here we are in this giant rock spinning through space. <laughs> we have no idea why or you know what's to come or anything. And if we stay in that condition of amazement and wonder, then we're open to all input, as you and I have been discussing. Then questions are not enemies, but they perpetually arise and engage and flow and move on. That when we do the work well, we're helping other people to enter into that condition of radical amazement. So I, you know, I'm shaking like a leaf. I get up on the day as I give my talk and everybody started crying. And that touched my heart so much. And I realized that they were crying because they heard out loud a story that they may not have articulated in words to themselves, but that lived as a little kernel or a seed inside their own consciousness, inside their own way of being, that they didn't think they were just doing a job. They also thought they were doing this big spiritual engagement. They also thought they were healing the world by what they were doing, but mostly in the world they lived in, data sand, to reference that again, nobody was asking how they felt about that. Those questions were not on the table. The table were how many artist-client contact hours did you have and circle from one to five, whether you gained in, in, in this kind of skill or other. So I realized that the tears were because I was telling the real story as they lived it. And that was what, when that was a high point. Yeah. And I, one of your conversations in this book is about the moral and ethical dimensions of the work. And if, in fact, you live in data stand, that's just not present. But if you're dealing with something as powerful, as transformational, as an act of creation that never existed in the world before that can move people, that speaks truth to the feelings that all those people felt, that we're not just here because we're we're arts administrators. This isn't the gig. That's not what it is. And once you enter into that world, the moral and ethical dimensions of the work take front stage because you're in a transformational practice. You can make mistakes with other humans when you mess with their lives using this power. And you need to be careful and conscious and respectful. Could you say more about the, what impelled you to broach that subject that I'm actually pretty sure most art schools aren't running around looking for that workshop. Yeah, I've done these workshops on the values and ethics. You know, when I did it in Europe, it was called participatory arts practice. It could be community-based, whatever, in which the shape of it really is I give people some information, some principles, and then we take a case study and of a project that people are actually involved in and look at the ethical dimensions of it. And two things are true. Three things are true. One is you're absolutely right. It deserves at least a full course, right? The ethics of the work. I've never seen a semester long course in any higher education institution on ethics. So that sucks. And whenever I do it, it's the first time. And I've probably done it a hundred times in different contexts. No one's ever been in in a conversation like that before, except a private conversation with it. Oh, I have a problem. Let's talk about it. Two things that are most important to me to impart are 
that ethical challenges will always arise in any collaborative work with human beings. It's inevitable. There's no way out of it. And that the default setting that many people are taught to have, which is, I don't want to make a mistake. I I have that feeling in my tummy, but I'm just going to ignore it and hope it, it will go away is a losing strategy. And so I want to encourage people to develop and sharpen their ability to sense ethical dimensions of the work and to bring them forward, to have productive ways to work on them with the group and to accept that they'll always happen and it's not a failure if somebody censors you, for example, which is one of, one of the most common. And the other thing that I'm trying to impart in, in doing that work with people is how many sides there are to a story, not in terms of a moral equivalency that they're all equal and they're all right, because sometimes power throws its weight around. There isn't a both sides-ism aspect, you know, that you can work out. But in many situations, for example, just because censorship happens so often, that's probably the classic frame that people pick when they give me stories about their work and what could I have done and what could happen the group brainstorms with them, using a set of questions that that I suggest to them. And the questions are designed to first get your own sense of what's happening out of the way, and then to put your feelings about who's right and who's wrong, because all of our knees jerk, and they jerk in every situation like that, put those things aside. Then we look at it as if we were Martians just arriving you know, what's really happening here from all the different perspectives. I ask people in the group to take on first-person roles of different actors in whatever's happening, and that circle of actors keeps getting widened. So it might not be just the folks who worked on the mural and the people who on the wall and the funder who said, I don't like what you depicted there, but it might be the people who live in the neighborhood and the parents of the kids who worked on the project and the people who understand the history that's being depicted in the mural, and you go out and out. And everyone has something to say. And often what people have to say is they imaginatively inhabit these multiple roles in relation to whatever the ethical challenge is not what you think of right off the top of your head when somebody tells you the story. So that's the third thing that I want to impart by doing that work with people. And here we are, you and I, Bill, were singing the same song over and over again here, which is there's just more to reality than there appears to be on the surface. And it, the more you know about what everybody is feeling and thinking and doing in relation to this, the more able, skillful and adept you'll be at learning something from it and finding a way to go forward. And the thing that jumps out at me from both radical amazement and this subject area is what I would call radical humility which is that this wisdom can bring you to a powerful sense of, of comfort with being able to say, I'm not sure, and we are in a complicated world. And particularly if you're in a position of power, I am not going to jerk my knee <laughs> in this circumstance and make things happen because of the potential consequences of acting with, without a consciousness, which is critical. Part four, the squandered power of lived knowledge. So your book has two parts. You have these incredible portraits, both in words and images of your 11 angels. But as you say in the second half, you have an agenda that's attached to this. And if you could just 
briefly talk about credentialism in the Auto Club. The Auto Club is the name of a manuscript that I wrote many years ago now. It must be about 15 and tried to get published about autodidacts, people like myself who are educated without benefit of formal education and diplomas and credentials and so forth. Because they're kind of thick on the ground. Of course, in history, they're almost everyone. But going forward, there's all these high tech people. There's all these amazing artists, household names who just didn't take that route and aren't usually recognized for sometimes the unique qualities that I described when we talked about Paul Goodman as the uncolonized mind, the ability to forge one's own path without being over much concerned with what other people tell you the right thing is to do. So it's funny because I speculate in the book, like, why do I care so much about this? Because I care about it so much. And I'm not going to make some kind of claim that it's the worst problem in the world, but can credentialism is a bad problem getting worse and worse. And there's lots of examples of how it manifests. So for example, we're all reading now about these elite higher education institutions, Harvard, Yale, Princeton, places like that. Massive tuition charges, massive endowments. These places have multi-billion dollar endowments that they're just sitting on and profiting by and not spending keeping the admissions small so that the value of the diploma from that institution keeps getting inflated, inflated, inflated. And by everything that they do, generally broadcasting the impression that higher education institutions are the citadel of knowledge, that they're the only legitimate path to learning, and that if people haven't followed that path, they might be very nice people, but they really don't have anything to offer the society. It's something that breaks my heart and makes me very angry. And people keep asking me, how have you been hurt by it? And the truth of the matter is not at all. My story is not one of being held back by not having a college degree. I'm smart. I worked hard. People asked me to do things. I'm just really not handicapped at all by this. But because I'm not, and because I came up the way that I came up and can see as a result of what my childhood was like, my family history, and also my life experience, I just surrounded every day by people who are severely harmed by it. So people who do ordinary jobs, you know, I ask in that section of the book, somebody who fixes your plumbing, somebody who waits on you at lunch, do you think of them as having the life of the mind? Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez was a bartender for years and years before she became a candidate. And imagine how insulted she was in so many situations by people who thought that meant that she had no intelligence and nothing to offer. I want to break the grip of the assumptions that underpin credentialism, this valuing of credentialed expertise over lived knowledge and the consequent devaluing of the individuals whose path to wisdom has been through lived knowledge. I want to break the grip of that on people's minds. And in part two of the book, I just tell a lot of stories that I think illustrate how powerful that grip is, including like sitting around at dinner with my friends after Trump is elected and, you know, Everyone at the table is saying, I blame the schools, which is the schools are pretty messed up right now. But that's a ridiculous point because there are just about as many right wing PhDs as there are left wing ones. You know, all the folks in Trump's administration and the ideologues who support him 
have prestige blue ribbon degrees from very expensive higher education institutions. But there's this idea that's infiltrated the society that says that you have to pass, go, be credentialed in this way, represent the values of these institutions, support their entitlement to be the sole source of legitimate knowledge to get along in the society. And if you don't do that, you won't amount to anything. I want to change that. I know so many people who've learned in other ways and have so much to offer and have been incredibly accomplished. And I only think of all the ones who haven't had the little hand up or the little chance or the little room and openness in the society to show that they can do the same. So there's a document that I've been working on for, I don't know, the last decade. It's called The Simple Rules of the Caucasian Empire. And it's basically an operations manual for establishing and maintaining power, race-based and otherwise. And maybe your Martians up there, it, it might be a research project that they undertook by observing how all this works. And certainly the credential thing is obviously one of those simple rules, which is you have hegemony over one of the most important power centers, and then you create a rubric that basically separates the wheat from the chaff. In the book, you share a strategy that you think could be applied to post-secondary education that might help open the gates and help expand the conversation about you know, critical issues we face. Could you talk about that? Well, at the end of part two, there's a section called Engaging the Quadruple Pandemic. And I'm saying there, what could these institutions do to truly be of service, to truly be relevant, and to truly engage people during this time when, you know, what we're facing is um, the COVID pandemic, the racial violence that catalyzed Black Lives Matter, and the pushback to that climate, and the accompanying economic disaster. And, you know, I talk about how there's this feeling of we'll just get back to normal and we'll do everything exactly like we did it before. But there I offer a way that these institutions could truly become relevant by offering a space for study and reflection and so forth to look at our shared situation and say, we're in a pickle. What are we going to do about it? We have a lot of smart people inside this institution. Let's open the gates to the people outside the institution. Use the methods of community arts work that, that you and I are talking about, where everybody has a story to tell and they're all welcome and they're all brought into the conversation. And use the kind of creative cultural research methods that people use in our work to devise some scenarios for how to go forward. And then to work with individual students about where do you see yourself in this scenario? Is there a place for you here? How can you be effective in this scenario? These are the questions that seem to me the ones worth asking right now. How shall we live? And maybe I'm not seeing it, but I'm not seeing it. Well, if you actually look at the missions of most universities, I think you'll find some version of the the goal, the vision you just articulated. Open learning and inquiry, advancing knowledge, benefiting society, but there's an assumption underlying that that I would say is not that different from the Marine motto, the few, the proud. 
As Liz Lerman describes it in her book, Hiking the Horizontal, we are addicted to a vertical mode of thinking, you know, that assigns a hierarchy of value and meaning to a limited range of people and histories and ideas, which automatically places us in the realm of scarcity. Here's how Liz put it in her introduction to the audio version of her book. This is the kind of hierarchy of ideas that I grew up with, and that continues to prevail in many worlds. Now imagine turning this line sideways to lay it horizontal. That way, each of these poles exerts an equal pull and has an equal weight. Of course, the line is not completely flat, and the poles are often not equally heavy. It's more like a seesaw, and that is why dancing and art making provide sustenance for the hike ahead. If we are lucky enough, we can actually take the long highway between the sometimes opposing forces. You know, it's sad to imagine the community and the university as opposing forces, but often they are. I, I think the open door, open circle that you describe in your book is, is important, but it's more than a palliative for this tension. It's, I think it's a new source of energy and ideas and wisdom and most importantly, accountability that we sorely need right now. Does that mean that laser fusion research should involve community members running around in the labs? No, of course not. But it does mean that the threshold moral and ethical discussions that these powerful inventions, these forces engender should involve the people and communities who will ultimately bear the consequences of their successes and failures and overreach. So would that be easy? God, no. When I... When I engage gatekeepers with these kinds of questions, they immediately focus on this messiness. Yes, actually including other people's voices is hard. Looking people in the eye and listening and taking them into account is super hard. Democracy is hard, but the consequences of not doing that, of not listening and learning and acting together is harder. And we're paying the price right now for this. And, you know, given that paying attention is the heart of creative practice, it's not surprising to me that the cultural workers that you and I work with seem to be the most insistent about this kind of listening and accountability. Arlene, there's a place at the end of the book where you engage your angels in conversations. And I have to say, I'm really glad you did that because I sense them wanting to have the floor uh, throughout the book, you know, to speak out. Anyway, there's a moment where Heschel speaks to the other angels about the evil of indifference that I think is relevant to this idea of listening and taking everyone's story seriously. Could you read that? It starts with the last time we talked. Okay. And let me just say by way of introduction, Bill, that this question about why I care about this so much has been in my mind all the way through writing the book. And I imagine that people might ask me that. And, you know, my answer is basically that domination has many ways of manifesting itself in the society. And this is just one of them. But as far as I know, you pull on any thread and you get the whole tapestry. So they've had that conversation already. And then Abraham Joshua Heschel, whose, whose name you heard before about radical amazement, speaks up, talks to his fellow angels. Last time we talked, we granted permission to quote ourselves. 
Heschel looked around, seeing no objections. You are reminding me of something I wrote, and then he quotes it. There is an evil which most of us condone and are even guilty of, indifference to evil. We remain neutral, impartial, and not easily moved by the wrongs done unto other people. Indifference to evil is more insidious than evil itself. It is more universal, more contagious, more dangerous. A silent justification, it makes possible an evil erupting as an exception, becoming the rule, and being in turn accepted. That's the end of the quote, and then he goes on. I wrote that for the Conference on Race and Religion in 1963. That's where I met my friend Martin of blessed memory, Dr. King. Heschel and King became really close friends toward the end of King's life. And um, actually, Heschel invited Dr. King to the first Passover Seder that he would have ever been going to in April of 68. And Dr. King was killed before he could go to that. So there's a really strong bond. And I have a picture of, above my desk of Dr. King and all the civil rights leaders m marching in Birmingham. And Heschel said of that, when I marched in this situation, I felt my feet were praying. Yeah, there's a friend, Jerry Moriarty from Northern Ireland, who's a, an incredible theater worker, playwright, actress. And I was there doing interviews during the Troubles. And every week was something to celebrate or something to just weep over. And I asked her, I said, so could you just talk to me about the strategies and processes that you use that makes this work have integrity? Where does the integrity come from? She looked at me and she ripped me a new one. She said, this work cannot be techniqued. I'm not going to talk about technique. This is a work of heart and spirit that's always changing. What seems true today can be false tomorrow. <laughs> Don't be convincing yourself that you always know the score and can sit on the sidelines. That's why you have to stay vigilant and stay engaged. And I have never forgotten about that. And today, we live in a world dominated by bullet points. Everybody seems to want the quick and the clean. And with this book, I think you've ended up making something that transcends that. And one of the great things you do at the end is you invite readers to call up their own angels as a landing spot for the odyssey of this book which again walks the talk and epitomizes what I think are the high standards for this kind of art and community work, which is, at the end of the day, you know, the simple message, this story is about us. And if we take you up on your suggestion, our angels. In fact, Bill, I've designed a workshop called Encountering Your Angels, and I'm going to put it out that I'm offering it to people because the process was just so powerful for me. I think it could really be wonderful for other people too. But I invite people to ask questions like, what are your salient characteristics as a person and where are they rooted? I think for most people I know doing that would also enlarge their personal sense of what valid knowledge is and their personal sense of how it's acquired. So 
suggesting that people encounter their angels is also a way of suggesting that what I'm trying to impart in the book can be learned experientially through scrutinizing your own past, your own thoughts and feelings. Uh, You know, the Latin roots of the word university describes a community of learning, which at its heart is a community of inquiry. And in the ideal, I think, implies an open mind, an open heart, and an open door, particularly for those folks out there with useful and inspiring messages and stories. (laughs) Our multitude of angels, which you rightly point out we all have, uh, which is a truly self-authorizing past to uh, cultural citizenship. What a gift. And Arlene, thanks for the gift of your work, this fabulous book, and for sharing it with us here. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. And thanks, listeners, again, for tuning in. If you're interested in grabbing a copy of Arlene's new book, you can find it at New Village Press and at Arlene's website, links to which we will be sharing in our show notes. On a personal note, I'd like to let you know that after a couple of years here blathering away, we're happy to say that we have a pretty solid audience, which is both gratifying and encouraging, so much so that we're keen to expand it. So if you'd like to help us do that, there are a few things that you might do. First, please share the show regularly with your community and subscribe if you haven't already. Next, If you have any ideas about how we might connect with fellow travelers out there, you know, newsletters, mailing lists, local arts organization that might want to embed a podcast that showcases change-making artists on their website, let us know at csac at artandcommunity.com. Art and community is all one word and all spelled out. Also, if you have ideas for guests or improvement to what we're up to here, drop us a line. We'd be grateful. Change the Story, Change the World is a production of the Center for the Study of Art and Community. Our soundscape and theme are a miraculous manifestation of the extraordinary musical imagination of Judy Munson. Our text editing is by Andre Nebe. Our special effects come from freesound.org. And our inspiration, as always, comes from the mysterious and ever-present spirit of OOK 235. Until next time, stay well, do good, and spread the good word. Good.